0: Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker.
1: This episode continues our discussion on the distinction between acute and chronic violence. We're going to present the distinction between what the neoliberal mindset offers and what the conservative mindset offers, and we're framing it as such. Neoliberalism is an argument that we should give government power to private entities, and the conservatives counter by saying we need a weaker government because the neoliberals want to take my freedom.
0: If you've done anything in, with ethics or in the thought processes of, of ethics, you know there are two camps that you have, I guess. One is utilitarianism, which states that it's betterment of society. So if you get to do something that does a little bit of harm to a group of people, that's okay as long as the overall society doesn't get hurt by it. Then there's the individual right to persons model which says you shouldn't do anything that harms anybody ever. Basically both those camps actually embody the neoliberalism and the conservatism. Neoliberalism is the embodiment of utilitarianism. How do we spread out the violence so that it appears that society as a whole is doing better?
1: And that's chronic violence.
0: It's it's basically masking the pain and suffering by spreading it over a large group of people in small doses. So instead of them shooting you in the head or killing you, you end up losing a year or two off your life.
1: You live near a hog farm, and your fucking pollution is poisoned, and you die. Yeah. If
0: you, if you talk about it in the terms of the studies that came out, the hog farms contribute to 17,000 premature deaths a year.
1: Every year, from particulate matter getting lodged in the lungs, which leads to stuff like strokes, high blood pressure, which has a chronic long-term consequence, so that's chronic violence. And then you have ammonia, which is essentially the same thing, but those are the two channels that kill literally 17,000 people every year because of industrial farming practices. That's neoliberalism. That's chronic violence.
0: 40,000 people die in car accidents every year because they're probably commuting to work. majority of the time in your car, you're not putzing around. You're going someplace to do something for capital. You're either contributing to society by working or contributing to society by buying. That's it. I mean, yes, you get to go and see people, but this year, not so much. It's COVID. Now, the conservative mindset, which is the respect for persons mentality, which is acute violence, basically means nobody gets to tell me what
1: to do. And if someone were to die
0: along the way, oopsie. They
1: deserved it. Their actions had consequences consequences they should have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps
0: they shouldn't have lived next to the ammonia factory that exploded in texas or what was it ammonia or was it another
1: oh plenty of shit has exploded in texas yeah it was the ammonia plant that exploded by a school by a school right five or six seven years ago
0: so that's a deregulation that caused i mean that that's the acute violence portion of which there's no regulations and there's and there's nobody around to tell you you know not to do what you're doing don't pour industrial chemicals into the river well, there's no one telling me I can't. So let's sue because tributaries aren't really part of the waterway, but yet the EPA was regulating them. So now you have mountaintop core removal that can pollute tributaries and basically murder people in West Virginia. And the Supreme Court says, well, it's not protected because it hurts profits. I mean, this is all crazy acute violence that happens all the time through deregulation. And that's what the conservative fascism wants. The neoliberal fascism says we'll spread violence everywhere so everybody gets a little bit of pain. And conservatives say if some people die and I don't, yeah, fuck them. They're both inherently violent. That's the important part. Both cause violence in a way that is measurable. That's the important part. It is measurable. The slowing of life expectancy is chronic violence. The amount of people who live with a chronic disease is chronic violence. People who live with hypertension for 30 years because of pollution or asthma because of pollution, that's chronic violence. And you're basically stealing their life from them like a dementor Harry Potter.
1: You should read another book. Uh, so we're going to discuss a couple examples of this general pattern of neoliberals advocating for government to privatize things and conservatives countering with their mob freedom argument. First one is gun ownership. So liberals, neoliberals will typically say, well, I oppose gun ownership because it leads to killings, mass shootings, acute violence. Neoliberals are opposing acute violence, which is the conservative camp. So the conservatives respond by saying, oh, well, we need guns to prevent government overreach. Because my freedom, that's a very straightforward A and B argument that plays out over and over and over. And there's never, ever going to be progress on this because nobody actually wants to address the underlying problem because both end with violence. They both end with violence. And what we've seen
0: is when the workers own the guns, because we here advocate for gun ownership of the worker. We want to arm the poor. We know that when you arm the worker on the poor, it's a lot harder for them to shoot tear gas at you. It's a lot harder to disperse your camp and break up your your basic fundamental right to protest. Imagine if Occupy Wall Street was armed. Do you think they would have cleared the camp? Does castle doctrine apply to a tent? I think it would if I'm living there. If it's your right in your home, then they try to come in. The problem is poor people don't have lawyers, right? And the problem is poor people can't buy guns. Because the Second Amendment is essentially only for the petite bourgeois and bourgeois, or individuals who uh, who scrapped together guns or were handed down guns by their family. What I mean by that is you need more than just the gun to be a gun owner, right? It, let's say you want to go out into the store and buy a gun. You have to have... $200, maybe $150 for a, a shitty revolver. You still need $150, $200 for the gun. You got to buy ammo. You should probably buy hearing protection or you're going to go deaf. You need a place to practice. So you're going to have to pay $20 to $50 per hour, depending where you're at your municipalities, for a lane to shoot. You have to have ability to store it. You have to have everything you need. And if you want to have the fundamental freedom to carry it in concealed, you have to do something like take a class, which costs money. You got to pay for fingerprinting. You got to pay for background checking. There's a ton of stuff that goes into gun ownership that only the petite bourgeois, only the suburban class can have. And that's fundamentally who's
1: driving the gun rights, is those that can afford to have it. So let's think about the right to bear guns in the historical context. The only people that had a right to guns during the Revolutionary War time when the Constitution was written was the individuals that had something to protect with a gun. So like landowners. Literal landowners were the target of the right to bear arms because they wanted the right to defend themselves from any foreign invaders as well as their government
0: slaveholders they needed to make sure their slaves didn't get in the context away or uprise so if you were to arm the slaves do you think the south would have been slightly different yes there you go that, I mean, that's 100% reason why you are honor the poor. We're not advocating for violence. We're, we're actually advocating for, for protectionism. We're actually advocating for
1: self-defense. The elimination of violence, which is caused by exploitation, which yeah. is caused by the ruling class creating rights such as gun ownership, that is only really available to the ruling class and is used as a mechanism of oppression where you see the neoliberals and the conservatives argue about should we have guns, should we not have guns based on just non-sequitur arguments that don't actually contribute to reducing acute and chronic violence.
0: If you think about it in a different way, both camps are slightly right about it. You need gun to protect yourself from other violence, but it's not the Wild West. You don't need to protect yourself from dueling in the streets. You're not some fucking hero that's going to Bring down 65 Russian terrorists and I can red dawn. That's not gonna happen, right? But what you do need, though, is at least the ability to counteract the violence by having your own ability to be violent, which means you equal footing. It also means that the class of people who tend to shoot up places are disgruntled suburbanites who have the means to have guns. There's a reason why a lot of shootings happen in suburban areas. They have access to the guns. We have the random acts of violence, but you don't see massive rampage shooting in city centers, like downtown city centers. That's not where they're at. You've seen it in schools and suburban areas. You literally don't see it in places people don't have guns. And that's missed on both sides.
1: It's all a mechanism to preserve capital and preserve capital's exploitation, which manifests as violence. Another good example of this argument is health care. Neoliberals advocated for the health care policy known as Obamacare which mandated that everybody should buy private health insurance. And then the conservatives respond by saying, oh, well, then I can't have my choice of doctors because they took away my freedoms. Same pattern still manifests as the worker getting absolutely rat fucked over in both spectrums by saying either you have health care and it costs you a bunch of money that you don't have because you're mandated to buy it or you don't have health care and you die.
0: Huh. Interesting. I don't even know where to go with this because it's so crazy. They're preserving the same system, but in a different way. So, n- neoliberals still have the utilitarian model, which is we're going to pool our resources together and we're not going to make sure we're well funded. We're not going to make sure that we have enough doctors. We're not going to make sure that we have enough resources. We're going to argue that we have resource scarcity. And the only way for us to dole this out is if we regulate who and how can go to what doctor because we have scarcity. Right. And that's basically Obamacare. Essentially, you have to have funds to go. You to go see a specialist. There's these like weird little gate rules that they always put up because they keep claiming their scarcity. The conservatives complain that I don't use the service. Why should I pay for it? Because, again, it's the right to freedom. It's the right to persons model. It says, I don't want you to tell me how I'm going to spend my money or make me take care of the poor or the sick, whoever needs it, right? I have my own cash. I can go see my own doctor. If I want to trade a chicken for healthcare, then I could barter a chicken for healthcare mentality. But at the end of the day, the worker who's not in charge of those policies needs healthcare and they don't get it. They get a shitty high deductible plan that they can't afford to go to. So it's essentially an insurance policy. So when they have a catastrophic failure, they can at least be legally seen by a doctor.
1: The classic neoliberal example that I like to use for the healthcare is you're paying money into the risk pool for insurance and these health insurance providers are then each independently buying an ultrasound machine but then when you actually get sick you don't benefit from seven different buildings having an ultrasound machine you go to the one building the emergency room that also has an ultrasound machine so your cost of insurance basically ensures that seven different entities have an ultrasound machine, but you're never, ever going to use six of them. You're only going to use the one at the emergency room. So how is that efficient? Why do we need seven ultrasound machines to exist with your payment? Why do we need private then entities that are imaging
0: places that they solely exist because we're quote unquote, an imaging place. Now the market will say they're being efficient, because they only hire radiologists. And the radiologists all sit in a room in Phoenix, Arizona, and they just get emailed your shitty pictures of your of your body. And they're going to spend their entire day in a dark room looking at radio, like radiographs. The issue with that is they still barter and argue for as much money as possible. So you actually don't see the benefit of the collectivism, which is large corporate entities controlling private uh, doctors' facilities. Surgery centers, imaging centers, right? Birthing centers, all these centers that they call, you don't see that benefit because they're always going to argue through the A, like the AMA, which is the American Medical Association for higher payouts, which you end up paying in your deductibles and your premiums. But they are fighting this thing like a pure operations, pure ops, where they're trying to drive margins as high as they can by cutting costs, which you don't see the benefit of because they're always arguing for more money. It's, It's a really sick, fucked up system and both sides want it. Because both sides are going to argue that the current system works. New liberalism says, oh, you already have private health insurance. People like that too. And the conservatives say, you don't get to tell me what to do. I think my private insurance through my company's paying all the premiums for is working. But it's still the same system, it's just presented to you di- different ways. Like the, the neoliberal idea is that you get to have these marketplaces where you get to pool your risk into high risk pools. But under conservatism, the high risk pool would just be basically bankruptcy. In the end, it's the same thing because a high-risk pool still has high deductibles and high premiums. It's it's literal bankruptcy eventually.
1: Right. If you get sick enough, you're going to exceed your ability to pay for health care in any way, shape, or form if you're a member of the 99%, basically. You get cancer, you completely – you're broke. Well, I just
0: don't know how anybody's going to have $5,000 sitting around for a high deductible plan that's already paying a premium as if that that a worker can afford that. You make $12 an hour, how are you going to have $5,000 sitting around for a high deductible plan? If you had more money, you wouldn't be buying a high deductible plan. That's the problem. It's very similar to the old anecdote about the um, you know, Good boot versus poor boot. The poor person ends up paying more money for boots over time because they they can only buy the cheap boot that wears out. It's a classic study. But the rich person pays less for their boots over time because they can afford a better boot that lasts much longer. Same thing here. Right? You you end up if you can afford the higher premium, paying less in healthcare because it's already kind of it's already paid for. It's like you're paying before you use it. Where the poor person can only really ever have catastrophic coverage. They don't get to go take care of their body. They don't get to go do any type of uh, you know, preventive maintenance, I guess, at this point in time <laughs> on their body they get to just go in when it 's catastrophic i don 't feel good that 's because you have stage four cancer i don 't feel good that 's because you had diabetes for five years i don 't feel good well, that 's because you have a lesion somewhere that 's never going away
1: right it it's it 's that problem that we have and the net outcome of this entire debate is that only poor people are affected, and the ruling class is again untouched by this issue because if they had money, they just simply buy better health insurance. but you can reduce the rates of the rich people by subsidizing the poor people's requirement that they buy health insurance. Regardless of how shitty it is, the conservatives complain about you can't go see your same doctor, whatever stupid ass, it's my freedom to not go to the doctor or I I don't want to buy insurance at all. I I want the right to die basically if I get sick.
0: Of, Of all the insanity that I hate between the neoliberal and the conservative fascism's, I had the hardest time understanding the right to persons, or we or always keep calling that, or basically the acute violence portion of it, because it's, it's it's psychopathic. And that's because we've all been raised to accept that neoliberalism is the less harmful choice. And that's because you don't see it. But at the end, it's just as harmful. And again, if not more harmful. Because not only have you distributed amongst more people, there's no way to fight it because no one can see it.
1: The invisible enemy, just like COVID. The third example we're going to talk about is neoliberals advocating for the means testing of everything, which is if you have the means to pay for something, you pay for it. You don't get a subsidized benefit. One of the classic examples that neoliberals and conservatives typically fight over is SNAP or food stamps, as it's commonly referred to. The general premise is that neoliberals want all kids to have access to food, and that's objectively good. But we don't want to provide food to people that aren't poor. And then conservatives complain that, well, we shouldn't provide handouts to anybody. You got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And if I have a kid, it's my responsibility to take care of them. And again, it goes back to acute versus chronic violence.
0: There are many people, many people, who are above the poverty line, but don't have food. Because
1: the poverty line is way too low to mean anything.
0: And that's because neoliberals are only trying, they're only fighting to preserve the status quo as best they can, which is providing you the minimum required for survival so you don't write and burn down Washington, D.C. That's literally it.
1: What's the least amount of money that can be exerted on an individual to still allow them to be productive for capital?
0: It's the same idea as people pushing tiny homes or pushing, you know, living in your van on Google's parking lot or the stories in which they say, look, the lemonade stand raise money for the kids' you know cancer battle. It's the same mentality that if you make a certain amount of money, regardless of where you live, because it's average over 48 states, the majority of the country is on the same poverty line, regardless of the actual cost of living in your area, which is completely nonsensical to me. Because somebody living on one side of the country does not have the same the same cost of living as someone living in the south or north or midwest or I mean they're all different because food costs different in different areas. Rent is different depending on housing shortages, but what banks own them that's another whole topic. And, and so it, it seems like every single time we talk about this violence in which someone goes hungry, there's always a means test, and it makes it it's wild to me. Well, why don't you go to you know the the um, food bank? They're essentially advocating for private entities to feed the population, which is nuts because that's really just communism if you just take away the profit motive. I mean, that's that's what it is. If you had a food truck, if you were allocated to get the same meal as your neighbor— I'm not talking about gruel. I'm talking about you go and you get, like, at the lunches, you get, like, your milks, you get your staples, like, your cheeses and all the important shit. It's all dairy, I guess. Right? You've it, it, taken care of, you decommodize food. There's, there's just farmers just farm to farm. There's no there's no pressures, right? The only pressure is to have enough food for everybody. Yeah, but you don't need to waste all, I mean, I think how much food's wasted for restaurants and things like that. I mean, it's, it's so bonkers. Decommodizing food and water and everything else is, and basically, your essential needs is how you transition away from capital. And things like... SNAP, if everybody were to get SNAP, which is Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, there would be really no hunger argument for it. I mean, Do the 80 billionaires need SNAP? No. But relative to the other 380 million people in the United States, does it really cost that much to give them SNAP?
1: No. It's a technocratic solution to a problem that can just have a blanket solution for everybody of, huh, maybe people need to eat, so we should provide everybody the ability to eat. The premise here is that starvation is violence, and when you means test access to food, you're providing just enough food for somebody to live, but perhaps not enough food for them to live in a healthy fashion. They might not be getting all of the requisite blocks on the food pyramid or whatever the USDA is calling it these days, whereas with the conservative plan, starvation literally occurs. So it's acute versus chronic again, and it's very explicit with SNAP.
0: In another classic example, and this is one you're going to find this year, this is going to be hot as shit this year. How do we cancel student debt? It's not going to be literally cancel student
1: debt. Which is the obvious solution. Just it doesn't, Biden writes down all federally owned student debt is hereby absolved, gone, done.
0: Instead, they're going to say, well, we should we should cancel $50,000 in debt. Why? Well, that helps of the population and 28% of our veterans or something fucking bullshit, but they're going to say it in such a way as to be like, we're going to cancel $50,000 in debt for anybody or family that makes under $250,000 a year. And I don't know why that's mean tested because you immediately take $50,000 out of the, out of the hands of big spenders at the higher end, they spend more. And if the economy is for spending, what the hell are you doing? Cancel their debts. They can spend more right? That, that's what you're arguing because they're going to be paying full amount. They're going to be paying $1,500 a month or whatever. Just cancel it and let them spend. That's the argument. The argument is to, is to give them the ability to spend more money or buy a house or whatever it is. So if you want to inflate the market, cancel all student debt, let them go spend. Because if not, they're just going to be debt slaves the rest of their lives and, and just give it back to a debt holding company. And the
1: conservative counter argument to that is you incurred student debt, you have to pay it off. It's your responsibility. And then you have a bunch of people that are like, well, I had student debt, and I paid it off, so why should you get it free? That's the little argument. The ar- people that are going to be arguing about it is going to be the suburban class, the PMCs,
0: whose parents paid 95% of their ability to go to college. And they incurred $5,000 in college fees because they took out loans for things like books or activity fees or something crazy or to go to Jamaica.
1: Yeah, they, they went and did a study abroad in Europe for a semester or some shit that like 99% of the population has no access to and shouldn't even functionally exist as an educational benefit.
0: But they're going to come out and say, oh, but I paid off my debt. And you're going to be like, well, how much did you pay off? That's the one thing you could do. Anytime someone challenges you, just ask them, what are you talking about? Like the student debt thing? Oh, I ask them, how much did you really pay off? When it comes to why do you think SNAP benefits? You're like, well, how many people do you think are going to benefit at the upper class? Like who's going to go out and use a SNAP card? Nobody. It's, it's inconvenient. Right? there certain things you buy. I mean, someone with money is not going to inconvenience themselves for $200 a month, right? The same question comes down for guns. Like, why do you want to take away guns? It makes no sense. I mean, everything we talk about today it comes down to the, the newer definitions that we're trying to do and talk about here in the show, which is acute versus chronic violence. Because so much is always focused on the conservatives being bad because they love acute violence. But in really, it's it's just a swinging pendulum between acute and chronic violence that, that just happens every election. You either the Democrat or Republican party, and that is literally what it is.
1: The common denominator in both of these ideologies is that they exist to preserve exploitation, which benefits capital. So we can say that exploitation causes violence. Exploitation is violence, and you see each of these demographics. You have the red team and you have the blue team, and there's this idea, and we talked about it before about propaganda. How do you market an idea to a demographic? And we've called this manufacturing consent. You have the blue team and you have the red team. And I want to manufacture consent that Obamacare is bad because you won't get to see your doctor. That's using propaganda to target a demographic people, this conservative demographic. And this idea of manufacturing consent has largely been presented as I want to figure out what the message is so that a certain demographic hears it and acts upon it. Iraq war is a classic example. We want to go invade Iraq, so we're going to have Oprah talk about how they have weapons of mass destruction. That's manufacturing consent. I think there's another possible new concept of manufacturing consent that we haven't really seen before, but that's happened relatively recently.
0: I like how it's presented in the idea that you're trying to find your market. How, how do you get both sides mad at each other? And and that's what the new definition of manufacturing consent is. It's not that you're uh, you're trying to create you know, the marketing for the demographic, you're actually attempting to create the demographic. You're trying to create the pool of people, the segmentation of people that will listen to you. And that is why we see such a big push for red versus blue, team versus team. Because if you're on a certain team, you are susceptible to a certain type of manufacturing or a certain type of propaganda.
1: And the most obvious example is all the Trump supporters. The Tea Party, it's happened over the last 12 or so years. You have this segment of the population that is basically ideology lists. They don't have an ideology, but they are committed to the man himself, Trump, and they will do whatever messaging is told to them. So, if you want to manufacture consent, you just tell this demographic what to believe and they believe it. You don't have to even come up with the messaging or what the propaganda is. It's just a cultural group of people that will do what they're told. Like, they're so completely housebroken that you don't need propaganda they just believe you and this is new i don't know that in the history of the us you've seen this mass demographic that is so without ideology that they can be used as just the basically the opposition to neoliberalism and create this perpetual struggle of blue team versus red team
0: so if you're the red team right now and you're the ultra conservative you might you're very susceptible to the the vaccines are bad You don't have to wear a mask. Biden's killing the economy, whatever you want to do, because that's not your team. If you're the blue team, it's Biden's doing great for the economy. Vaccines are going to save us and everybody should wear a mask everywhere. And those two groups of people are wildly different, but they're basically susceptible to the same propaganda. It's just what demographic they're in and what propaganda you use. They both get their content from Facebook. They're both getting their content from the news, whether or not it's Fox or CNN. They're both getting their content from newspapers and online media and and Twitter. It's essentially creating a demographic in the digital space right now that allows you to control what propaganda goes to what group. And that is what manufacturing presented. It's the demographic-focused segmentation
1: of the population. For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at WorkerMovement.com.